Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing. I'm your show host, Randy Fine. Fine Time for Healing is a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. Today we have with us Dr. Sharice Johnson, LCM, HC, NCC, who is a veteran psychotherapist and mindfulness practitioner whose work focuses on the intersection of trauma, somatic integration, spirituality, and social justice. She is the founder of Jade Integrative Counseling and Wellness, an integrative therapy practice where personal values, the search for meaning, and the power of choice are the central focus. Sharice holds a BA in Human Development and Family Studies, an MA in Professional Counseling, and a PhD in Counseling Psychology with a concentration on crisis and trauma. Check out her website at www.drsharice.com. That's C-H-A-R-R-Y-S-E. And get social with her. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Sharice. Welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. It's it's great to have you here. So I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so your latest book is called Expired Mindsets. And um, I know that the work that you do with trauma and somatic issues and things like that kind of melds with the work that I do because I do narcissistic abuse coaching and counseling. So a lot of we do a lot of trauma work in this, which is why I was really interested in talking to you. The book is called Expired Mindset. What is an expired mindset? Sure. So think about the concept of food, right? That's expired, where at one point on shelf life in the refrigerator, it was great, but keeping it beyond the time that it's necessary could be harmful. So when it comes to a mindset, it is a way of thinking, believing, or acting that at one point in your life may have been necessary or felt like it helped you survive. But then moving forward to another season of life, keeping that same mindset doesn't work as well and actually causes you a lot of harm, letting you know it's time to reframe it, which happens in the mind and in the body. That makes a lot of sense. It does. and. Many of the of the mindsets that we're carrying are carried over from childhood and situations that, you know, because in childhood, we are doing what we have to do to survive whatever we're exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, but if we're not taught anything different, we bring that into adulthood, right? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times we don't know what we had to do to survive as children, right? It may have been during a time that we did not have language or everything looked like a loving home on the outside, but we just felt uncomfortable. And then we get in later situations and go, why do I react this way when someone is yelling or if someone doesn't respect my boundaries? So those connections can be there and they can be subconscious. So are you basing some of this on your own life and mindsets that you've changed? I definitely try with anything that I, you know, do and support to go hear things that I've learned along the way of trying to heal my own childhood traumas. In the book, Expired Mindsets, one of the first 
kind of child traumas that I have memory of that I speak about is having to break connection with my biological father. Um, it was an unsafe connection. And I walk people through that experience and then seeing it cycle back when I started dating in college to my now husband and not realizing, wow, I'm carrying a mindset that was, I don't need anyone from, I don't want to need my father. That's not going to work very well if I want to be in a relationship <laughs> going forward. So yes. I can so relate because I have a very similar journey. Um, you know, I've had to, because of narcissistic childhood abuse, I have had to disengage with my parents and change my mindset because I had a series of toxic relationships as a result of it. So this really is not uncommon, is it? Not uncommon at all. And part of what I wanted to do, and that's why I shared part of my story. I wanted people to know I'm not a psychologist and researcher that's sitting up and just giving you information. I'm going to use my own life and my own story, then invite you in to go, this can happen to anyone at any time, but we all deserve awareness and an opportunity to know it is possible to heal and to better as possible, right? We don't, we're not stuck living in those toxic cycles unless we choose. I think it's wonderful that you are relatable this way. Um, I, you know, I think people, they want to, um, they want to work with somebody who really gets it. And yeah. um, not only do you have the um, professional credentials and experience there, but you do have the personal experience and that's very, very valuable to people. I know that people really like that, that when I share that about myself, they're like, okay, you get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, yes, I do. I, I yeah. truly and do. <laughs> it, well, and it makes a difference. I can't even imagine how beneficial it is for the people that you support for them to know she's walked through this and she's living to tell about it. And now she's in healthy situations. It's like, giving people a picture of hope. And I feel like too, it allows them to be more vulnerable because they don't feel like here's this perfect person. So they believe, you know, that sitting back and judging everything that I'm doing um, when that's not the case at all. So thank you. And, you know, I, I appreciate the work that you do. Very helpful and very needed because we all have things that we need to work through. Right, exactly. How many people or what percentage of people, and this is just a wild question I'm putting out there, for it. really don't have the tools, I mean, really do have all the tools for living as an adult and they get it right from the start. I mean, is that, do many people have that? I would honestly say probably about 5% of people actually have tools to get anything right, you know, and that may sound like, a really small percentage, but a lot of times if I'm working with somebody or talking to a group, I'll go, well, what did you learn about emotions in your family? And then everyone's like, oh yeah, no nothing. Absolutely. That was not a conversation. No one sat you down for the most part and said, this is how you walk through a difficult moment. And this is how you put in a boundary. And this is how you respond if someone is trying to gaslight you and convince you to do things that aren't comfortable. We typically learn that later after going, why does this keep happening to me? 
Um, so that I think really normalizes the need for support and not feeling bad about it. Because I think we believe as adults, we're supposed to just know, mm -hmm. and that's not true. Right. And so many people beat themselves up over the fact that they're making these mistakes when in fact, they're not prepared to do it any different. And I always tell them, listen, we're here to learn. You know, If we were perfect and we didn't have any reason to anything to learn, we don't, wouldn't need to be here. So we're working all our stuff out and we all are. You know, yeah. so it's very difficult to get it exactly right. So I agree with you. 5%, it sounds low, but I really don't think it is that low, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. Even if you come from a really loving family, right? <clears throat> you, you may still have had a very loving family that said, the only emotion that's okay is happy. So as long as we all look happy, then we're good. So you're really comfortable with pretending to be happy, but you don't know you know, what to do with the other issues. I was having a conversation just yesterday with a 23-year-old young woman who is just learning life in her 20s. And like you said, was really beating herself up going, why do I not see these tendencies with people that I'm dating until after some type of harm, you know, has been there and putting all the blame on herself versus the other part of the puzzle, you know, with another person having that trust. And I just wanted to highlight that goes along with what you said, but we have the rest of our lives to learn. We take people for what they show us. And it's very, what's the word I want to say, confusing when we think people are one way and then they change and you go, wait, but most of my relationship with them has been good. How did we get here? It can be very disarming. It can be. And a lot of times there's no rational um, excuse, no rational reason mm -hmm. for why things change. And I think we tend to be logical, rational people, at yeah. least those of us who are somewhat mentally healthy. You know, we process things in a healthy way. Um, we look for logic and mm -hmm. there are some times where there just is no logic. And that's real hard for people to grasp. Yeah. So taking that same example, I think an example of, you know, what this young lady was saying was, this is my fault. This always happens to me, right? That has now become this limiting core mindset that she's operating off of. If I get hurt by someone, it is my fault because this always happens to me. Mm -hmm. So that's when we kind of come in and first, how is that showing up in your body? right? What do you notice somatically in yourself when you're putting that blame on yourself and then helping her cognitively go, how do we widen the lens and realize that when there's an interaction of hurt between you and another person, it's never just one thing. It's a recipe, right? Of, of different things, but don't take on all the blame yourself because you're not allowed to have that conversation and that healing with another person. Wow, that's great advice, great insight. And I know that um, my listeners are gonna have a lot to take away from that. It's very, it's very important, it's very important. How old were you when you really realized um, how expired your mindset was? You know, I didn't realize until probably right outside of college, towards the end of college, 
I lost my mom at a young age. She passed away from cancer. I would say within 48 hours of having my son, which I share and talk about that process in the book and how hard that was to be giving life and also losing the only person in my life who had been the anchor. So I think it was at that point of watching myself navigate that season and then looking back that I realized the way I thought about things wasn't atypical, right? It wasn't the same as most people. Even as a young child choosing to go, I would rather not have my father in my life and and figure that out than to keep trying to win his love and experiencing that abandonment and that rejection. So it was probably then that I began to kind of seek more information about the way I thought but also the way it was showing up in my body and how to be able to move forward and have a healthy relationship in light of all of these things that happened to me as a child. What's the most common ways that it shows up in our body? So there are so many various ways. Some ways that are common to people is anxiety, rapid heartbeat. It can be feeling tense and tight in areas of the body difficulty sleeping, but it can also be as subtle as restricting food when you're feeling physically overwhelmed sensations in your body. It could be binging on food. It could also be isolating or even a level of what we call self-sabotage in the sense of there are habits that we know this is not ideal but it's something that I do in order to make myself feel safe. For example, if we're afraid that somebody is going to reject us, we may reject them first in order to kind of self-sacrifice. We feel that in our body. We feel a, a grief, a sadness, a heaviness on our chest, but also we feel like we don't belong. And so it becomes intricate. I brought in the feeling a little bit because when all of those things are happening, they're all happening at the same time. And most of us are not used to actually tracking our sensations because we're trying to get out of our body and distance ourselves from what we feel. So true. So true. A lot of people tell me that they feel it in their, they have stomach issues, solar plexus, and Mm -hmm. often the heart chakra right here. Yeah, yeah. A lot of pressure there. And sometimes I've had a lot of people tell me that they're ha- all of a sudden they're having shoulder pain. And mm-hmm. there's no rhyme or reason to the shoulder pain, but it is all related to trauma that they're working through. Yeah. So, and then a lot of times, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. Yeah. And I was going to say, and then as they work through it, what they'll notice is some of that physiological pain starts to release. You know, I brought in the eating because that's in the gut. We call the gut our second brain, right? 90% of your serotonin, which is necessary for mood, is built and developed in digestion. So you might even see IBS or digestive issues, which you go down this track and just think, oh, I've always had a sensitive stomach, but it can actually be dysregulated um, gut microbiome because of that mind-gut connection in the sense of childhood trauma. So a lot of people, again, we're not taught, this isn't always common knowledge, that childhood trauma changes even our ability to feel appetite, satiety, fullness, um, and how everything works and links up together. 
That's so interesting. And I don't know that I knew that, <clears throat> but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That we, that this is where most people have this, this issue. I've had, I had this issue since I was a little child. I've always had it, you know, and um, unexplainable things. And so, you know, I've had to work through all of that um, to get my digestion to a, a fairly healthy place. But I think that when you um, bring these kind of somatic issues into adulthood, that you can manage them. I don't know that you can alleviate them. I mean, completely get rid of them. What, what is your feeling on that? I would completely agree. There's a concept in the world of trauma and somatics where Bessel van der Volk talks about the body keeps the score. So there's going to be this baseline aspect of how you respond physically and in your nervous system to things that if you are in a situation that is activating, your body remembers and it is going to respond. However, much like you said, with practice and somatic work and working through the cognitive aspect of healing, you can learn to recognize it and manage it by going, here's the boundaries that I need so I don't put myself in situations that may be uncomfortable or knowing this is how I'm wired. So if I get that felt sense, I don't have to stay because one aspect for a lot of people is if you grew up in situations where you weren't allowed to leave the toxic environment, you become frozen. You go into freeze, you blame yourself for it later, but at the time, that's all you know to do. So it's even giving yourself permission and you learn how to manage it. And I'm a big proponent, I'll say um, as one last thing on this area, of learning how to work with how your body responds to activation instead of trying to resist it or wish you weren't that way. Like your body's trying to keep you safe. It is not out to get you. And if you can befriend those sensations and listen to them, that's what opens you up to a life you don't have to escape. I so agree with that. This is something that I had to learn because I've I've had just issues, chronic fatigue, all kinds of things as a result of my childhood. And I used to get so upset every time I'd have another bout. And I'd say, it's here again. Oh, when is this going to stop? And then I realized, no, just say, okay, hello, I recognize you. <laughs> we're going to have this today and we're going to just allow it because you know better. And we're going to relax into it and tomorrow will be different, you know. Yeah, changed so much for me. So you are mm -hmm. absolutely right. Yeah, it reminds me of sometimes with clients, I'll tell them, put one hand on your heart and one hand on your belly. And if you are navigating that sick, distressing stomach or desire to isolate, it's almost like kind of talking to your inner child or your somatic system and going, I sense you, I see you. What do you need? We're okay, right? And even the placement of the hand on top of that middle area, especially skin to skin, creates that oxytocin, which creates like a sense of love and a little bit of pressure and helps that vagus nerve calm down. But I see you, I feel you, I acknowledge that there's some pain here. What do you need? And we're okay, right? This, this, kind of befriending in this alliance mm -hmm. and giving yourself permission to go, 
all right, what I eat today might need to be different because my stomach doesn't feel well, so I'm not going to push it. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and this is so important. It's so important that we talk about this because we tend to measure ourselves against other people. And we see people, they're always going and they're doing and they're fine. They seem fine. We really don't know. But yeah. um, it looks that way. And we like, why am I going through this? But so many, so many of us are. Um, and I like that hand on the heart and hand on the stomach. I think that's awesome. That's an excellent, very simple thing we can do. You know, I've even had clients, um, all of a sudden I'll be, they'll be, I'll be talking to them and I'll see them do something like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, do you know why you're doing that? And they're like, well, yeah, I, I kind of do. This soothes me, you know, but, um, you know, some people have the instinct, but I think it's really important for everybody to get this because there are times mm -hmm. where you do need to self-soothe like that. Yes. Yeah. And if someone has been physically violated, it's important for them to reconnect with, is touch safe? And how do I engage and give myself permission to reestablish that I can lay this hand on myself and it's okay and I don't have to fear. But, you know, going back to what you said, a lot of people walk around and look fine on the outside and inside. It's a very different dynamic. One little tool that listeners may love is I often will teach people what's called an internal weather report. So I'll go, this is what you're showing the world on the outside. Now I want you to go in and kind of take a look around. What do you feel? What do you notice? What thoughts are there? And describe your internal weather, mm. which might be partly cloudy. Oh, I look great on the outside, but actually there's a tornado on the inside or it's pouring down rain or it's gloomy. So it's just a way to acknowledge that there is often a difference between what feels safe to show the world and what is actually happening inside our body and what we're covering. I like that. Yeah. It's a great analogy. It really is. It really does help you to understand what you're dealing with if you can put it in those terms. Because some people don't really, a lot of people don't really have the, the language um, to explain feelings and emotions and sensations and things like that. But that's really good. I like that. I might steal yeah. that from you. Go for it. And the weather, <laughs> you think about it, the weather is one of the first things that most of us learned in school. What's the weather like to, you know, so it can feel safe and it's something that we can describe and it's, it's about us, but not really, right? Because words can be scary sometimes to acknowledge and admit. So I'm also a big proponent of what color describes where you are today right and even allowing people to kind of track their colors throughout the day so that they can even see all right here's this part of my day that was brown but if I look at the rest of the day there were some uh, there were some other parts of the rainbow there throughout the day and just noticing like that one part doesn't have to take over the whole day even though that's where our mind is going to want to stay I love it yeah, love it. These are these are excellent. I really, really like that. And I can see how that would um, that really would help people to begin to explore mm -hmm. what they're feeling and experiencing, you know, that they don't have the words for. So 
did you go into this field because of your background and your interest in this in trauma and psychology as a result of your childhood? You know, I didn't go into it as a result of my childhood. It really became something that I feel like kind of made its way to me. My initial thought was because of my childhood and the trauma that I experienced, although I did a lot of research and study, I said, let me not go too deeply into that field at first because I wanted to be sure that I was working from my scar and not my wound. Right. And so I was very cautious. And a lot of my early work was geared towards marriage and family and individuals, not necessarily trauma. However, I soon realized that there was no way not to <laughs> focus on this area because a lot of couples and what they were experiencing had to do with unhealed trauma from growing up. That then when they joined together, they were activating each other, but not just because they weren't compatible, but because there were things that they brought in. And that's what made me go, I can no longer eliminate this from my work. I need to bring it in. And then as time went on, much like you said, people who've had significant experiences of trauma can be re-traumatized having to keep verbalizing what happened. So that moved me into how can I help people find healing when cognition is overwhelming or blunted? Like I feel it in my body, but I don't even have enough memory, mm -hmm. right? To, to actually have the words because I've disassociated or repressed and how to bring that all together so that they could still experience healing. So it kind of found its way and morphed its way in because I realized that eliminating it was keeping people from something they really needed. Right. You know, I think that was very responsible of you to not enter into an area where you were not completely resolved yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'm not so sure that a lot of mental health practitioners do that. Yeah. Um, and some of them will bring in their own issues as a result of it. And I know that the work that I do now, I started doing in, you know, in my 50s. Mm -hmm. um, had I done it earlier, because I, I started in school with psycho for psychology mm -hmm. and um, life just kicked me out. I, I had to get out of school and do other things. <clears throat> so I never really did it, but it's a good thing mm -hmm. because I would not have been able to work with people mm -hmm. in the state of mind that I was in. Yeah, you, you, you will absorb, you will trigger, you know, and you have to be resolved if you're going to help people. Yeah, you have to be resolved and whether it's us or people who are working through their own healing, it's a lifelong process as well yes. of caring for yourself. You know, one of the biggest misconceptions that people will often have about how do I get past this trauma is tell me what to do so I don't have to feel this way yeah. anymore. And it's like, well, it doesn't quite work that way. You know, there will always be I call them vital habits that will help you stay in a place of recovery and healing, whether that's slowing down your pace and not overwhelming your system. Even for some people, how they eat is a big aspect of how they feel because certain foods may activate them. Sleep quality, being hydrated, movement, but also knowing a body at stress doesn't need more stress. 
So a lot of trauma survivors trying to do really aggressive forms of exercise may actually activate your adrenals mm. and your nervous system and feel like a threat to the body. So how do we explore things that still get your heart rate up a little bit, but feel more moderate? And, and so it's just really learning yourself and context of life, right? You're managing all this by yourself is one thing. Well, if you get married or have children or go through a stressful situation, your needs are going to ebb and flow depending upon the context of your life. So true. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Trauma is such a big topic right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's, how would you describe, how would you define trauma? So one of the ways that I have defined it to make it more accessible is any experience beyond your capacity to manage at the moment, right? So any experience that causes you physical or emotional overwhelm beyond your capacity to manage at the moment. And part of why I use that is because the word trauma in itself, a lot of people do have an aversion to. So I will often go, there are multiple words. You could say overwhelmed, disastrous, worrisome, stressful, because there is a subjective aspect of it. A lot of people, and you may have found this, minimize traumatic experiences because we equate trauma with the movies and these big one-time events, but don't realize growing up in a home where your parents were physically present, but not emotionally available is traumatic because you have all these little moments every day where you can't figure out what do I need to do to experience love? And then you are connected later to emotionally unavailable men and can't figure out why that attracts you and why no one will ever love you, right? Mm. So over your capacity, causing physical and emotional overwhelm is one of the most basic and overarching dynamics so that people don't go, oh, well, that's not a trauma. I love when people, and I'm having a conversation and they go, I would have never thought in a million years that that was the one experience that, kind of set me off here and there's not always just one but you know sometimes there's there's moments and you're like who knew that not being chosen to be on the team multiple times made me feel like I was never good enough so I love it as you can see <laughs> I I know that's that's just so interesting you know I think about my daughter she she was doing some energy healing with some an energy healer and was brought out to her that she had some um, humiliation in her background. And my daughter, I handled her with kick gloves and there's never humiliation that I could see, but she said, she's saying there's something there. And I remembered something that happened when she was six years old at school with a teacher humiliating her. Mm -hmm. And when I brought it up, she said that resonates, but I totally didn't re recognize that, you know? So, um, yeah, we really don't know. How do you feel about, I know that the DSM-5 does not recognize the term complex 
post-traumatic stress disorder. But I would think that when you have all these might, you know, traumas piled on top of each other for years and years, it is a complex PTSD. How do you feel about that? I feel that the DSM-5 is a tool, but with limitations, right? Because it, it is not fully inclusive of what many people are experiencing. Complex PTSD, complex grief, complex traumas are very real for multiple reasons, right? So for example, we know from research and from neuroscience that even genetically, we can pass generational felt sense of encoding into our body. So we carry DNAs that if a couple of generations of parents experience traumas, that also adds to our emotional load, right? Mm -hmm. Then you add, it takes on average six to 12 weeks to resolve one trauma, one. Most of us barely make it six to 12 days before something else happens. So a lot of us have layers of complex trauma. And then yes, if PTSD is not resolved or a person is unable to be in a situation that allows them to find that balance and they continue to experience traumas that are layered on top of that, that complexity is going to be there and makes it even more difficult because their system is so dysregulated that it's difficult for them to make the decisions that they like to make. A dysregulated, hypervigilant body goes, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to get out of threat. I don't really care whether that's good or not. We don't really think about the good things in our prefrontal cortex until after things have calmed down and then we feel bad and we feel mm. guilty. So if you're listening to the sound of my voice, complex PTSD is very, very real. I applaud what you. What you're experiencing <laughs> is accurate. Yeah, I agree with you, the DSM. It's yeah. limited. It really is. Mm -hmm. They're very slow. They're dinosaurs. They're very slow to make changes. Very um, slow. Yeah, very slow. So um, people always say to me, I'm so afraid to release what's in there. I'm yeah. so afraid of what's going to come out. Mm -hmm. Is it true that our subconscious is only going to release enough a little bit at a time that we can manage that it's not going to just all of a sudden flood us with everything. How does that work? So there is some truth to that, but how flooded a person feels is going to be different, right? Okay. The person who feels flooded and doesn't have the tools and the support and the capacity is going to go, this is terrifying. It feels like a tsunami, even though it might just be a drop in the bucket, okay. you know, so I want to acknowledge that, but it is accurate that the subconscious body and mind is very intricate around it will distance you from the things that it knows that you're not ready to receive i'll be working with someone for example and we'll get to a place and they're like okay i haven't thought about this in years and this has been on my mind i said well we got through the top layer of your traumas and you've been able to release that so then it's like cleaning out the deep freezer where your subconscious goes, let's go, let's get in there and clean out some of this other debris. And it brings it up through the subconscious, often through dreams, 
often through fragments that happen, you know, in the evening or bits and pieces of memories. So emotions, fragments, subconscious emotion, they're messengers. And even if you see them, it doesn't mean that you have to like do something with them immediately. So the way to balance it is I'm afraid of what's going to happen and I'll go, well, what's going to happen if we don't? right? If you try to keep it all in, how is that working for you? Exactly. Our subconscious mind really steps in and protects us, doesn't it? It does. And sometimes that is wonderful. And sometimes that creates a block. And that's where education information and support and healers and coaches and counselors can help give us the courage to go, okay, I'm not going to do this deep work on my own but I'm willing to do it when I'm sitting with Randy, you know? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. I mean, and, and it is our unconscious mind, I believe that gets us through toxic childhoods, traumatic childhoods, because if we don't have a parent who is teaching us how to cope with the situation we're in, then we have to find some way to survive in it. And I believe that's where the unconscious mind steps in and just gives us some kind of tool yeah. Um, and then it can be really bad if it creates a personality disorder, um, like pers like narcissism, uh, oh, which which yes. is the extreme the response. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It really is. And it's very hard. Very very hard. Um, I've definitely supported a lot of individuals who are what I call narcissistic survivors. You know, through recovering which is a long process of reclaiming themselves and their ability to trust themselves again and believe in themselves um one client and i we often call it you know someone who's been through narcissistic abuse it's like a residue it's like this really thick slimy invisible yet not invisible residue that really takes time to kind of gently rub off and and rub through because depending upon how long you were in that situation, it really creates a lot of confusion and fear, but it's possible to remove it and to manage it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is possible. People, people don't have to live with that pain. It can be worked through. Um, let's talk about the importance of self-love and really what, it, how you would explain self-love. Yeah. Self-love is granting yourself permission to accept yourself as you are in its most basic definition. And also recognizing that sometimes when we've been hurt, we want people to love us in ways that we don't know how to love ourselves. True. And so self-love is very self-protective because what self-love does in essence, let's say if I had a cup. I just happen to have one here. If I engage in self-love practices, that means I wake up in the morning and I pour into my own cup through the way I care for myself, through the way I talk to myself, the way I treat myself. And then I'm just kind of carrying that around at any point I need it. It's there. The opposite is this cup starts off empty and I don't love myself to pick up the water and pour it in there. So I'm literally walking around going, is there anyone who will pour into me? And then people prey on that. 
They wow. prey on the fact of, I have something that you want and all I have to do is give you a little tiny bit and you'll be so excited that I gave you something that you will keep coming back for more, but yet there's not much in there. So I'm still kind of dying of thirst, but I don't know how to fill this. So self-love means giving myself all of those basic needs so that if I allow anyone in my life, it is to add to the overflow, not to meet my unmet needs. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> well said. I really like that. And the other thing is that people who struggle with self-love often are people who are givers. They want to help other people. They're helpers. And they're helping from a dry well or a dry cup. And then they wonder why they feel exhausted and tapped out and, and angry and annoyed and frustrated all the time because yeah. they've gotten, they don't replenish it. They're just giving from an empty space, right? Yes. Giving from an empty space. And I believe a lot of givers don't understand non-givers, right? So they think, well, I would do this for someone and I'm so giving. So they naturally expect other people to do the same. And then they are so hurt when they realize, oh, you're actually a taker. You're, <laughs> you're not a, a giver. You know, um, I talk about that even some in one of the chapters where that can be a really challenging dynamic because then you feel like you weren't good enough for someone to give to you. So again, you blame yourself for not being able to have people consistently give to you. And you think, well, then if I just do what everyone else wants, then maybe they'll give to me until they don't. Until they don't. And that doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. It allows, it allows other people to really take advantage of you. Um, you know, nice people don't do that, but there's a lot of predatory people who will, who look for that. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. Um, so how can somebody improve the awareness of their expired mindset? Yeah. I know that's a big question. Sure. So you can it's take it apart question. however you want to. <laughs> yeah, it's a big question that we'll make simple. One of the things that helps us care for ourselves and show love for ourselves is to notice what's happening in our life, right? And it sounds small and it is, is taking time to ask yourself, how do I feel? What am I sensing? And what do I need? Isn't a way to increase awareness, whether that's once a day, whether that's multiple times a day. I'm a proponent of first thing in the morning, waking up and going, what do I notice about how I feel as soon as I wake up? Did I wake up sad? Did I wake up anxious? Did I wake up depressed, right? And then as I go throughout the day and make whatever adjustments I need, maybe it's the middle of the day again, what am I noticing? What do I need? So just asking that question to ourselves is awareness. Typically, our awareness is, how can I get what I want from that other person? Did I complete my to-do list? What else needs to be done? We're more transactional and right. not really paying attention to ourselves. So 
What do I'm, I noticing as I sit here for 60 seconds and breathe? And what do I need? How can I honor that need? That is awareness in its simplest and basic form. What a great practice for us all to have to yeah. start off our day like that and to monitor it throughout the day. It's a very, very good way to stay in touch with our needs and our feelings and how they're changing throughout the day. Mm -hmm. um, so there's principles in your book that help you overcome limiting beliefs and negative self-talk. Mm -hmm. um, we may have touched upon them, but is there sort of a list or a, some kind of order to this? Yeah, so the way that I have tried to create a framework and see it more as a circle is awareness, action, eviction, and alignment. So awareness is like we spoke about, what do I need? What do I notice? Action is, now that I've identified my need, can I honor it? And typically honoring that is going to mean I'm going to have to change what I think about, is it okay for me to mm -hmm. honor it? So I always want people to know that noticing your sensations and your thoughts, those are integrated. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, if I'm a person that believes it's not okay for me to love myself, that's going to make it difficult for me to get to action. So to go from awareness to action, it means it's okay for me to give myself what I need, right? Then from action to eviction, eviction is that place where we want to look around and also decide what are the people and situations and relationships in our life that make it challenging for me to continue to maintain my awareness and my action. Maybe I have a friendship that although they've been there, they're very demanding. And when people demand things of me, I lose myself. So in order for me to keep healing, I'm going to either need to put a significant amount of distance in that friendship, or I'm going to need to evict that person from my inner circle. So it doesn't mean that they have to completely get out of my life, but I need to kind of kick them out of my inner circle because their closeness and proximity to me keeps me dysregulated. Um, and then alignment means, and what do I want to bring in? Who are the people, what are the places, and what are the habits that I feel like this is really more in alignment with who I am? Now that I'm aware that I carry a lot of anxiety and that anxiety makes me want to people please and not meet my needs, I realize that I want to align myself in a job where I can do what I love, but the demands of that job don't exceed my body and my level of anxiety. So then I have this more fluid process that allows me to operate and go, I can be myself. My healed self here doesn't feel like it's in conflict. Excellent. Have you had anybody say to you, so it's really okay to be me? Because I know I've had people say that. <laughs> yeah. So I really can just be who I am. Yeah, you really can. And it's, it's hard for us to even realize because one, we have to realize, I don't even know that I realized I wasn't being mean. I didn't know who I was because I've always just been what everyone wanted. 
and this is really okay and things aren't going to fall apart <laughs> let's let's yep. try it out you know and then they're like oh my goodness such a release you know, it's such a release and a relief yeah, but it takes a lot of courage and a lot of hard work. So I want to acknowledge that. And if you're in a place and you feel like you're not always you, that's okay. Just find the little pockets and the moments and notice who are the people that when I'm around them, I feel like I can be more of me and, and give yourself time to get there. It doesn't have to be an all or none or overnight mm -hmm. dynamic. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just in the recognition of the thought or the, the thought that you think is not something you could do better with sometimes yeah. it's just the recognition of that that will set you on this um you know this process of moving working through that you know just yeah. the awareness and i saw i often tell people you know just start off by being aware of it just mm -hmm. just be aware of it you yeah. know you don't have to do anything just notice. right <laughs> just notice it you know and in the noticing you will begin to make these changes yes. um you said something about the inner circle and this is very true i notice and i don't know if it's with all um mental health healing or uh, issues but with narcissistic abuse in particular healing causes your inner circle to get very small it shrinks mm -hmm. sometimes to the point where you don't feel like you have really anybody that understands what you're going through. Mm -hmm. um, why does that happen? Part of it is the role of the narcissistic abuser is control, right? One of their dominant dynamics is in order for them to have their needs met, they want control of every facet of what life looks like and you so they intentionally distance you away from people who will see them or see how they treat you in a different way. The other aspect is when someone who's in that situation is managing it, there's a lot of shame and a lot of exhaustion. So they might even struggle to have the energy to make connections. Like, I don't want to be around people like this because it's now so heavy that I can't pretend in survival mode, all we think about is how do I just get through it and not be seen so that I can stay safe and stay out of the line of fire. True. So part of healing, which I imagine you see is the moment that that person who is working through that narcissistic abuse says, no, I deserve connection. And I want to learn that connections don't have to all be toxic. And that there are people out there who will treat me well, but it's it's shocking for them at first. Sometimes they're like, they're they're being nice and kind and honest. Is this real? Can I trust right. this? I'm waiting. You know, they're waiting for this skepticism, but exactly. it's so protective. Exactly. And what the abuser has done. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, letting go of past pain, trauma, things like that. You know. Um, there are some people who have built a, a complete identity around their trauma and their pain. And it feels like they're just going to be dropped off a cliff with nowhere to land if they let that go. That's very scary to some people. Can you mm -hmm. comment on that? Yeah, it's, you know, 
you build the walls in order to keep people out, but then realize now I'm keeping myself in and I'm not showing up in ways that are helpful. What I often will encourage is what you've done in order to survive is what you felt was necessary. So first, don't judge that. But then as you go through, just consider, is there any part of this identity that I've created that is exhausting, that feels heavy, that feels inauthentic? Because when a person has been through any type of trauma, choice is extremely important. So I try to help them decide, is this what you would still choose for yourself, right? I realize that this was the identity that you've created for yourself. And I'm just wondering, are there any other choices that you're considering or that you want to consider, right? You don't have to, but just curious. Well, come to think about it. Being this way doesn't work out for me so well here. Well, if you made another choice or if you just poked a hole in the wall, what do you think would happen? What would that look like? So it's like them getting a chance to decide, okay, I'm not, I'm not tearing down the whole wall, but I'll push through this one brick and just see what it, what's out there. And then they take steps from there. And that's a lot, that feels a lot safer, right? Yes. Yeah. To take baby steps and to do it, you know, in your way, not in the way that you think you're supposed to, but in the way that feels right to you to proceed. Yeah. And, um, and the last question I wanted to ask you, because this is something that uh, many people struggle with, and that is, how do I create a healthy boundary with others? Oh, yeah. And what, is, and what is the purpose? Why do I need these boundaries? Yeah. Boundaries allow you to mutually love yourself and other people. Right. So it is this aspect of if a healthy boundary is in place, it means that I'm not choosing my love for you over my love for myself, but it means that we can mutually exist in a healthy way. And I use that because sometimes boundaries can feel harsh and scary to people that feel like I'm not good with boundaries or I feel bad about boundaries. So let's say that a boundary that someone decides to give is I don't want to be alone by myself with someone who I don't feel comfortable with. And they go, but I feel bad. I don't think they don't trust me, but it goes, well, is that showing love to you? You know, by not being by yourself with them? Yes. Okay. Check. How does that boundary also show that you care about that other person? Well, I want them to experience the best me. I don't want them to experience the me that is nervous and scared and, and agitated so they won't experience the best me if I put myself in a situation where I don't feel comfortable. Okay. okay. So then that boundary is for both of you. You feel better. And then when you are with them, they get to see the part of you that you want them to see your authentic self because you haven't given that up to try to please them at the expense of yourself. Okay. Great explanation. That's a really different take on um, yeah. boundary setting. I like it though. I like how you yeah. said that. Um, yeah. Do you have a copy of your book, Expired Mindsets? Because I, I don't have a copy. I would show it, but it's okay. I'm trying to think. I was going to say, I'm at my office and not my home office, so I don't okay. have one with me. But That's okay. You can I get just, it on Amazon. I just wanted to, if you had it, I would yeah. tell you to hold it up and show us. But um, so your book is Expired Mindsets. I'm trying to read this. Yep. Releasing, Releasing patterns. patterns that no longer serve you well. 
And we yes. sort really, really took that apart today, I think. Yeah, we did. We did. It really complements things. It's one of those that's not designed to be a quick read. It's designed to be something you work through, you process, you revisit. Um, at the end of each chapter, which was important to me, includes reflection questions and mindfulness exercises so that as a person is reading, if they are feeling any level of activation, it's kind of my way of going and you know, do this box breathing to kind of bring yourself down a little bit before you put it away and continue to go forward. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also on Audible, which I recorded in my voice. And I thought that was important since wow. there are parts of my story in it. Yeah. That's a big project. It was emotional and yes, a huge project. Huge. Hats off to every person who does their own. Huge. I, I hired somebody to do mine because I, 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 whoa. You know, and even with that, you know, she was saying, wow, you know, there's, she said, she said to me, having to pronounce the word narcissist or narcissistic so many times, she's like, I kept making so many mistakes. It's, it's hard, yeah. but I do applaud you for doing your own. And it's wonderful for the people who know you to hear you in your own voice. Yeah. yeah. Very, very great. Um, and Dr. Sharice, do you work with patients virtually or are you seeing them in an office? So I do both. If they live in Charlotte, North Carolina or the surrounding areas, okay. I see people in person, but I also see people virtually and do kind of a combination of technical counseling or kind of healing coaching because I do try not to pathologize and have to use diagnoses, um, but it just depends on whether or not someone wants to do insurance. And then couple times throughout the year, now that we're post-COVID, I do healing retreats where I take small groups of women and we come together and kind of work through some of these things, both physically and emotionally. Great. Great. Well, thank you. We've, I've had a really enjoyable conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Yeah, I told you we would, we would do just fine. We'd get there. We did just fine. Thank you <laughs> we so much. We did just fine. And, you know, I'm saying this to my listeners because Often I have um, my guest's book and I just didn't happen to have it this time, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. No, it didn't matter. We it, talked about the things that were important and all of the marketing and all that stuff. It's out there for the world to it's find. It's out there. Okay. And this can be purchased on Amazon and- Yeah. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any local bookstore as well can order it for you through the ISBN. Yes. And you have it, is it digital also? Yes, and it is an ebook okay. available as well. Great. All right. Well, have a wonderful day and thanks so much. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye-bye.